Listener Production. Archaeology. Is it science or history? I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is the Science Briefing. Archaeology has informed us of many of the facts we know today, from things like when migration took place to when some religions were formed and what kinds of foods people used to eat. Today, I talk to Cosmos journalist Matthew Ward-Ages about what we've been dredging up and why digging up the past isn't always bad. I'm sure most of us have heard the term archaeology, but we might not actually know what it means exactly. Matt, just so we're all caught up, can you run us through what archaeology is technically? So archaeology, in probably the simplest way, is the use of science and scientific methodology and techniques to interpret and explain phenomena that we might dig up. It's a knowledge-based field that relies on appreciably, I think, a good understanding of history and being able to understand things within a historical context, but also being able to use a range of very sophisticated scientific methodology to provide specificity, to be able to actually drill into the detail of what a person might be looking at in their hands, but also to understand the story at a larger timescale of the planet. So now that we've covered that, Matt, what's the first discovery you're going to tell us about today? It's sort of a discovery, Sophie, on an already discovered thing. Okay. In 2011, not too long ago, the Cambridge Archaeological Unit discovered four bodies buried south of Cambridge. So we know Cambridge of Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. And in a town called Trumpington, they found four bodies which had been buried over 1,300 years ago. So we're not talking a modern CSI thing. We're talking a much more banal burial over a millennium ago. So they were particularly interested in one of these bodies, which they believe belonged to a 16-year-old girl. The reason they were interested in this particular specimen is because her skeleton was found surrounded by metal brackets. Okay. So metal brackets, in this case, are associated with wooden bed construction. And so this told the study group that it was likely a bed burial, a very rare practice from medieval Europe where women were sometimes buried as if they had gone to sleep. And I guess when we think about the way that we put modern humans into a coffin into the ground, it's the same sort of idea, but this was as if they were buried in their bed. And so down it goes into the ground. The interesting thing about this, though, is that this was sort of exclusive to noble Christian women from the south of Germany or that sort of region of Europe. Oh, okay. So what's she doing in Cambridge? (laughs) (laughs) Great question. (laughs) So she is only one of 18 bed burials ever found in the UK. She was also found with a gold and red garnet cross, which was likely sewn into her robe. And the cross is extremely rare. Only about five have ever been discovered in Britain. So we've sort of, I mean, I mentioned CSI before. We're sort of piecing together a historical story here. It's a mystery, Matt. It's a mystery. Well, it's a mystery that they probably have solved though. So what this has told archaeologists is that she was probably a notable, and if we think of the UK, you know, aristocratic, but potentially royal person of early Christendom. So potentially was sent in an almost ambassadorial role from Germany by the Catholic Church 
to the UK as I suppose, and I'm going to just sort of make up a word here, an attempt to Christianify the UK. It was in its very early stages at this point in time. And so therefore it might've been, you know, as we often see, exchange of cultures and that sort of thing taking place. So that's where the work of a bioarchaeologist might come in. Okay, Matt, can you take us through what a bioarchaeologist does? Because I thought this sounded like a really cool job when I was a kid. Oh, okay. I could see you being a a bioarchaeologist as opposed to a fluid mechanist, sort of the opposite thing, Sophie. You should have followed your dream. (laughs) If you took an archaeologist and a forensic scientist and sort of mashed them together, I suppose that's what you'd be getting with a bioarchaeologist. So these professionals are looking at bones and DNA that have been dug up and analyzing them to try and unravel a bit about the specimen's history. And so in this case, they did an isotopic analysis of her bones and teeth, which can tell you about things like her diet. So from that basis, we're able to actually piece together a little bit about her history in a scientific context, as opposed to that sort of historical or cultural understanding of why she might have ended up where she did. Yeah. Can you run us through why looking at teeth and bones could tell you about what someone ate or where they lived? So we know what elements are. Mm -hmm. So there's at least 118 that we know of, and these have a specific number of protons in their nucleus. Yep. But neutrons in their nucleus can vary, and those variations are what we call isotopes. And we can analyze carbon isotopes, for instance, in organic remains. Organic is carbon. So this is basically applying a little bit of a you-are-what-you-eat principle to archaeology. So they analyze very, very ancient tissue samples to see the ratios of carbon and nitrogen, for instance, to determine diet composition and change. So analyses, for example, that show high levels, relatively speaking, of nitrogen, that might suggest a diet that is richer in animal protein. And in contrast to that, a lower ratio could indicate a predominantly plant-based diet. So whilst we can't necessarily say that this is always like definitive, it does give you a really good insight in terms of probability as to what, in a case like this, a person might have been eating at a particular time of their life. And so for this teenage girl in Cambridge, an analysis of her remains showed that when she moved to England from somewhere around the bottom of the Swiss Alps in all likelihood on the German border, she probably changed from having very little meat in her diet to a little bit more. So that is an important thing that allows us again to use science to piece together this, I guess, historical context that we might find a human's remains. One of the most interesting things though for me about this story is that they've gone and pieced together what this person probably looked like. So Matt, is this this cool thing where they do like the full facial reconstructions? Yes, absolutely right, Sophie. So we see this like today with, I guess, modern criminal cases where we might have some remains or there might be a a disaster. We want to try and piece together a person's appearance. So bioarchaeologists and the broader research team appointed some forensic artists most recently. So I said that this was an old story that we already knew a little bit about, but the new bit is putting a face to the the skeleton, as it were. So they've put together a forensic facial reconstruction using a combination of techniques. Firstly, they take a genetic sample from the individual in question, and this enables them to sort of say, ah, hair color, eye color. They take measurements of the skull, so things like the brow ridge, the distance between the eye sockets, the shape of the nasal chamber, the projection of their nasal bones, their their nose, and measurements of other parts of the skull, 
or what would be the face, broadly speaking. So that provides, I guess, the template for the sculptors to then interpret and begin the process of recreating the face. And then because we know the person's ethnicity and their sex, we can then inform the layer of tissue depth on their face. So in this case, the depth of tissue for a Caucasian female. Now, Matt, I don't know how we make this work, but I would really like if somehow I could be buried in one of these bed things and then I decompose and then people in the future reconstruct me as a Caucasian female, but they'll have like a photo for reference, but they have to go on a treasure hunt to find it. Just an idea. But Matt, you've given us a pretty good rundown of what can happen when you find a body. What happens when you find something like a building? Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess recently we've seen similar discoveries in, again, Europe. So some researchers working in the Wadden Sea. Do you know where that is, Sophie? I don't know where the Wadden Sea is. No, that is a interesting part of European coastline. So that lines the coast of the Netherlands, Northwest mm-hmm. Germany and Denmark. Okay. So hopefully we can place you there now. Yep. And so along that coastline are tiny islands And it's long been known that some islands in this region had disappeared in catastrophic storms. We lost the islands. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. In 1362, (laughs) the storms blew through and buried all these islands sort of off the coast of modern-day Germany and Denmark. And one of those was the community of Rungholt. And so, as I say, this this island, this tiny, tiny island with a little trading post perched on top of it, disappeared in a massive storm, which we know occurred thanks to oral histories and some documented history to come out of that event. So again, we're going back to this idea that we're using our understanding of human history through the stories that we share to give us a target for science to come in. So on the basis of this, they used a range of geophysical methods to go and find it. Things like magnetic radiometry, so a method that allows the mapping of magnetised objects which had buried beneath the surface and seismics to try and find out where this town might have been on these sort of very artificial settlement mounds that had been created centuries ago. And so these mounds, which they call Terps, are where several old trading posts were built in the Wadden Sea. And one such Terp that they found buried beneath the mud was the site of the central church of this Rungholt community. So measuring 14 by 15 metres roughly. And it is one of the largest churches found in North Frisia. So in this case, and our knowledge of how these communities were built allows us to say that this was probably the central building of the town. Mm -hmm. And the mapping exercises have also shown the use by these communities of drainage systems, sea dikes, and tidal gates. So a lot of sophisticated engineering was taking place in this region at the time in the 1300s. This is all very, very cool, Matt. But we do have an epic history slightly closer to home. Can you tell us what they've dug up in Australia? Mm, Yes, many thousands of years worth of history. Yeah, epic history, (laughs) like real long. Mm. So a few years ago, there was a really interesting piece of news that emerged from some work published in the journal Nature. And that was from excavations that had taken place in Kakadu, which is in Mirar country in the Northern Territory up in Arnhem Land. So this particular rock shelter 
which they excavated most recently about 10 years ago. They found a range of old stone implements like stone axes and seed grinding tools, and they are among the oldest used on human record and certainly Mm -hmm. the oldest in a Australian continental record. And so they've taken samples of other organic material at the site. So things like charcoal, perhaps from a fire pit or a campfire, mm-hmm. they then apply carbon dating techniques or thermoluminescence techniques to try and work out just how old these things are. And so what they landed on in terms of a time period is that these artifacts were about 65 thousand years old. Yeah. Which is pretty old. Very old. And the inference being is that humans might have arrived in Australia a lot earlier than Mm -hmm. we thought. And back then, it was probably the preceding continent to Australia. So that's called Sahul. And so this time period would also speak to the fact that the original people that came from Southeast Asia and crossed into this Sahul continent, which eventually became separately New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania, would have shared this continent with megafauna. So the giant wombats and other animals that we often hear about in the context of Australian megafauna. So this has added about 20,000 years to what sort of roughly is the 40 to 45,000 year arrival of people to the continent. It is still disputed. Not everyone is in agreement on this point, but certainly it's a really interesting piece of research where scientists, where archaeologists have dug up a particular site at the top of Australia and used scientific techniques to try and understand how old these things are. Scientists need to work respectfully with traditional owners. And this applies particularly here in Australia, Mm -hmm. but it applies globally as well. I mean, there are Indigenous cultures right around the planet, as we know, and they all have their own individual customs, cultures and protocols that inform the way that scientists should go about engaging and working with them. Matthew Ward Aegis is a science journalist for Cosmos Magazine. You can read more of Matt's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. You can find links to the found items and reconstructions in our episode description. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Bonnie Lavelle. Mixing by Dave Stein. And I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. Catch you next time. (laughs) 